Welcome to Vintage Sci-Fi Shorts. In each episode, I'll read one short story from the pages of vintage science fiction magazines from the pulp and digest eras. Join me as we explore stories from a bygone era. Some are long forgotten. Others have had a lasting impact on science fiction. Stories are selected that represent interesting, compelling, or exciting examples of science fiction from the 1930s to the 1960s. In the first season of Vintage Sci-Fi Shorts, I'm reading stories from Universe Science Fiction. Universe Science Fiction was first published in June 1953 by Ray Palmer. It ran for just 10 issues, with its run ending in March 1955. It was then merged with another of Palmer's magazines, Other Worlds, which later became Flying Saucers from Other Worlds. Today's story is MCMLV, a story written by Wilson Tucker and published in issue 8 of Universe Science Fiction. When you have a doorbell that goes ting-ting-thunk instead of ringing properly, you get accustomed to unusual visitors. At least, it seemed to Henry Mason that since his doorbell had taken to misbehaving, his visitors had been anything but run-of-the-mill. The doorbell chimed its familiar one-two-three pattern, a tinkling, ting-ting-thunk. Henry frowned at the unfinished sentence in the typewriter and twisted around to stare through the window at the street. People were always annoying him with that broken step, ting-ting-thunk. Perhaps if he had the thunk fixed, they would stop ringing his bell. He leaned a precarious distance from the edge of the chair, trying to peer around the edge of the window. He saw only a car parked out in front. Resigned to the temporary defeat, Henry got up from the desk chair and padded into the adjoining room and to the front door. As he walked, he buttoned the sleeves of his shirt and tried to smooth down his hair. It might be a woman waiting on the other side of the door. Only last week, a young miss had stood there, selling pots and pans. He turned the knob and yanked it open. Two dull-looking gentlemen. Mr. Carew, the nearest gentleman asked politely. Carrie Carew. A pleased expression settled on Henry's face. That's my pen name, he replied pleasantly. Ah, yes. Henry Mason, is it not? That's me. I know you must be a busy man, Mr. Mason, but may we have a few moments with you? My name is Groves. Henry Mason raised his eyebrows. What is it? Groves deftly reached into an inner pocket and brought out his wallet. Flipping it open with one hand, he held up and exhibited the silver shield pinned inside it. FBI, he said politely. I also have credentials. Now look, Henry burst out, I can account for every penny. I always keep my receipts and records and every penny spent was a legitimate expense. I can show you. No, no, Grove said, still politely. FBI, Mr. Mason, I'm not with Treasury. Mason blinked at him. Oh, may we come in? Your neighbors will be watching. He smiled a vacant little smile that meant nothing. Henry admitted the two of them, the polite FBI agent and his companion, who said nothing and did nothing. He led the way into his writing room because there was an easy chair there, and the room was the most comfortable in the house. 
The room was lined with bookshelves and filing cabinets and stacks of typing paper, tools of the writer's trade. He invited the agent to take the easy chair, brought in another for the second man, and sat him down beside the desk to lean warily on the typewriter. Henry said, My neighbors are always watching me. They think I'm eccentric. Indeed? Still the politeness. Camouflage. Henry waved a casual hand. It lends an aura of glamour and mystery to my activities and sometimes increases the sale of my books. Besides, it keeps them away from me, always nosing around. I see. The agent studied the writer. Without speaking, Henry held out his hand to him. The agent stared at the open palm and thought as if guessing his thoughts, brought out the wallet a second time, opened it, and placed it in Henry's hand. Henry brought it close to his eyes to read the identity card. He read the agent's brief description, looked at the name, carefully examined a small photograph, and then peered up at the man, comparing the photograph to the face. Yes, unless the whole thing was a forgery, this was actually Arthur Groves of the FBI. Henry laid his open palm across the silver badge to get the feel of it. He saw the agent watching him. Testing it, Henry explained. I once wrote a story in which my protagonist discovered a government agent was an imposter by feeling the badge. A silver badge imparts a certain cool sense to the touch, where another metal will not. I see. And are you satisfied? Yeah, I guess so. You're FBI, all right. And this isn't about my taxes, eh? No, indeed, but we have another matter entirely. Mr. Mason, we have been reading some of your most recent stories. Carrie Carew beamed. Did you like them? I'm afraid I'm not a competent judge, the agent told him. It isn't their merit that we are interested in, Mr. Mason, but their content. Some of your newer stories have chronicled the adventures of a government secret agent, and their content has been... Ah, uh, interesting to the extreme. Carrie Carew fixed the agent with a cold and beady eye. Thought police, he snapped. I beg your pardon? I said thought police. You're going to tell me what to think and what to write. I knew the government would come to this. Groves frowned ever so slightly. But that isn't true at all, Mr. Mason. I have no intention of telling you what to write. My only purpose here is to inquire into the content of some stories you've already written and published. Henry stared at the man for a long moment or two, his memory rushing back over the more recent tales that had appeared in print. Aha, he said suddenly, I see. What, may I ask? Why you are here? Crime think. I beg your pardon? Crime think. The crime of having thoughts not in sympathy with those currently in Washington. The writer's manner was an odd mixture of frightened, mason, and defiant Carew. Very well. If he was going to be sent to the rock, he would go with head high. I sometimes manage to include a bit of my personal philosophy in my fiction. And now Washington has discovered that and descends upon me like a cloud of locusts. He looked around at the second man and thought to correct himself. Two locusts. Grove stared across the room at his silent companion. The companion broke his silence. Eccentric, he muttered. Groves shook his head and patiently began again. Mr. Mason, you persist in misunderstanding me. I am not interested in your thoughts or your philosophy. I am interested only in certain phases of your stories dealing with the government secret agent. This fellow, what is his name? Dan Devlin, Carrie Carew supplied promptly. Yes, Dan Devlin. This Mr. Devlin is a remarkable fellow. I might say he has seen more action in his brief career than I have in my entire life with the Bureau. Thank you. To get to the point of the matter, Mr. Mason, this Dan Devlin chap knows a little more about governmental secrets than we do ourselves. Oh? 
Yes, for instance, in one recent story, you have him thwart an enemy spy who is intent on stealing plans for the atomic bomb. As I recall, he does succeed in trapping and capturing the spy and in recovering the stolen documents. But Mr. Mason, you then proceed to reveal the contents of those documents by causing your hero to read them, thus allowing the readers to learn them. The documents are read off in detail. You point out that 22.7 pounds of U-235 are necessary to critical mass. You describe the materials of which the bomb casing is made. You draw a verbal picture of the triggering device which causes the bomb to explode. And you then show the exact amount of damage that a bomb will do in a given area. Of course, Kerry Carew said happily. He waved to the well-filled bookshelves about him. I always do research. That isn't public knowledge, the agent said. Or wasn't until you wrote it. He seemed bitter. Well-documented research always lends an air of authenticity, Carew proudly explained. Perhaps you didn't understand me. I said that wasn't public knowledge. It was classified. Henry stared at him. What was classified? The entire data concerning the bomb which you published in the story. Nonsense, the writer said. The second man leaned forward in his chair to fix Mason with a probing glare. It isn't nonsense. How do you explain it? Who are you? Henry demanded. Clark, the other snapped. CIC. What's that? You should know, Clark retorted with a suggestion of wryness. Your Devlin character works for us. Oh, you mean that. The counterintelligent corps. Say, I'll bet you guys really get around. Do you like to read my stories? We've been reading them closely. What about it? What about what? Where did you get the classified material on the atomic bomb you published? Research, I told you. Research, my eye. That hasn't been published. Henry sat up triumphantly. I've got you. It has. Has not. Has, he pointed dramatically. Right there. His triumphant finger indicated an encyclopedia set. The set was his pride and joy, a veritable gold mine of information on every subject under the sun. Time and again, it had come to his rescue to provide an authentic background, a tropical setting, a concise history, or a hidden date or fact. That particular encyclopedia set had repaid him many times its cost by giving him the material to fabricate many stories. The CIC operative glanced at the set only long enough to identify it. You'd better have a good alibi. Carrie Carew gave him a scornful glance. I don't understand how you made the core. You can't come to a rational conclusion until you've examined the evidence. Dan Devlin lives by that rule. Just between you and me, buddy, Dan Devlin hasn't got long to live. Where do you get that classified data? There, Henry almost shrieked. Oh, take a look and let's get on with it, Groves interposed. He had lost a modicum of his politeness. We want to find out about that rocket material as well. Carrie Carew brightened. Oh, yes, my white sand story. One of my better ones, really. The enemy spy gave Devlin a real chase for his money in that one. Grove said wearily, Between the enemy spy and Dan Devlin, several cats were let out of the bag in that one. Where did you obtain the classified information on the fuel mixture used to fire the rocket? And where did you gain the data on the height it reached and the me meteorological matter it obtained while up there? And how did you learn of the alloy and construction methods used in the rocket? How did you know the exact date it was fired? And how long it was aloft? And where it fell and how much of it was recovered? 
A casual Carew pointed to the encyclopedia set, his expression revealing his opinion of real government agents. Clark was fingering the pages of the first volume, leafing toward the section headed Atom. Henry watched him, inwardly grinning. Clark finally reached Atom, turned a few more pages to Atomic Energy, and settled back to read. The room was quiet except a solitary fly buzzing against the window, vainly seeking an exit. Henry glanced around his den, examining his many bookshelves, fondly contemplating the filing cabinets, feeling quite proud of it all. His filing cabinets bulged with already published stories and early drafts of others, waiting only to be polished and mailed out. His shelves contained many reference works of invaluable nature. Upon those few occasions when he was called upon to lecture a ladies' club or a student writers' meeting, he liked to say that a successful writer is a well-read writer. It was best to instill in those eager young minds there was no shortcut to literary fame, no easy way. One must, hey, Clark's startled yell punctured his thoughts in the silence of the room. It is here. Of course, Carrie Carew said with simple dignity. Authenticity was the lifeblood of fine fiction. What? An incredulous Groves demanded. Every blasted word of it, Clark declared, word for word. Oh, come now, Carew protested mildly. I'm not a plagiarist. I always make it a point to rewrite my source material. But it can't be. It hasn't been released. Has, Henry repeated. This is impossible. It isn't supposed to be in public print. Is, Henry said. There's something wrong here, something awfully wrong. You, Henry suggested. Groves reached for the volume and almost tore it from his companion's hand. Clark whirled to the bookcase and searched rapidly along the spines, checking the alphabetical keys. He was searching for the matter on rocketry, especially those recent rockets fired from White Sands, New Mexico. Volume 29, Henry said helpfully. Clark muttered his thanks and jerked at the volume. The period of silence was repeated, and in due time, the stunned exclamation of disbelief. Groves, meanwhile, had read the article on atomic energy and was gaping at the wallpaper. There in print was a concise summary of millions of secret words now locked away in Washington vaults. It was fantastic. He looked across the room to Clark's face and found a similar answer there. Clark had just finished reading another summary on the White Sands experimental rockets, information supposed to be known only to White Sands and Washington. Wonderingly, Groves turned over the volume in his hands and stared at the spine. The encyclopedia had been published by an old and respected New York firm. What else, he asked in somewhat of a daze, has Dan Devlin done? What more have you released? Well, Carrie Carew said modestly, there was the adventure of the atomic cannon and some nasty business involving plutonium hand grenades. And right now a magazine is preparing for publication my latest story about biological warfare. An enemy spy sneaks into the Maryland. A suspicious clerk cut him off short. Is that in here too? Henry nodded. Volume three, I think. Oh, no. Oh, yes, Henry assured him. Grove seemed to have recovered his presence of mind. Where did you get this encyclopedia set? From a peddler. A peddler? Yes, there's always somebody stopping here, interrupting my work. The doorbell is broken. Well, not broken altogether, but it goes ting, ting, thunk. You see, and that can sum my nerves after a while. Only, I didn't mind one day last week because a good-looking girl stopped by selling pots and pans, and I said to her, The book peddler, Groves repeated impatiently. 
He was just a peddler. I was working on something or other, and the doorbell went ting, ting, thunk, and there he stood. I really didn't mind after a while, because it is a good set, and I needed it. Sixty-five dollars. Sixty-five dollars? Clark was holding his head in his hands. More than ten years' work? For sixty-five dollars? What's the matter with him? Henry asked. Groves regarded Henry Mason as he would a child. He's upset, he explained clearly and slowly. He's unhappy. He's a United States secret agent. For ten years or more, he and hundreds like him have labored long and hard to keep our wartime secrets secret, to keep them from the prying eyes of the world. And you buy a $65 set of books, which permits your Dan Devlin to reveal everything. To be blunt, he's disenchanted. Henry gazed at the bent head of the other agent and said, Oh, now listen carefully. I want you to tell me about this peddler. I want you to describe him in detail and repeat what he said to you. I want to know the whole thing. Why? Because it still might not be too late. If only a few thousand copies of this set have been sold, may be able to gather them up and burn them. You expect me to remember a casual transaction that happened a year ago? Henry demanded petulantly. You have a keen ear for dialogue, Grove said. The unfair blow found its mark. Certainly, Henry declared. Well, now, let me think for a minute. He closed his eyes and put his fingertips on them. It was like this. The doorbell chimed its familiar one-two-three pattern, a tinkling, ting-ting thunk. Henry frowned at the galley proofs he was reading and twisted around in his chair to stare through the window, one irritating interruption after another. If he didn't finish correcting the proofs and get them off in another day, they would be late in reaching the printer, and most likely that would mean his book would lose its scheduled press time, and so be late in reaching the bindery and then the stores and wouldn't be published in time for the Christmas trade after all. And in addition to all those horrible things, Miss Winston and his publisher's production department would write him a scathing letter. Henry sighed and pushed the galleys aside to get up from the desk and go through the adjoining room to the door. He opened it and found an elderly gentleman wearing a walrus mustache standing there, beaming cheerily. Ah, good morning, Mr. Carew. Good morning, good morning. A fine day for the creative instinct, is it not? And how is your work coming? Well, okay, I guess, Carrie Carew told him. But I don't want any. Mr. Carew, how can you say that? No man may boast he is well-read or well-informed without a solid backgrounding in the literary treasure of the world, a repository of the accumulated wealth and knowledge of the centuries. Mr. Carew, a man of your reputation, simply can't afford to be without one. Carrie Carew watched the walrus mustache bouncing on the fellow's upper lip as he talked. Without one what? Mr. Carew, I was hoping you would ask me that question. It reveals you as a man of discernment, a man of eager and inquiring mind, a man who seeks truth and light in an otherwise dark and ignorant world. Mr. Carew, you may well pride yourself on your advanced mental faculties. The elderly gentleman blew steadily on, bewailing the backward ways of the outside world and loudly admiring the towering pillar of strength and light in the person of Carrie Carew. The mustache wagged madly, and the old gentleman worked up quite a head of steam. You, sir, he said, need one. Need one what? Henry repeated. 
a modern and up-to-date world encyclopedia in only 36 magnificent volumes, a storehouse of knowledge smartly and fully covering the world of yesterday and today. I happen to have in my hand the initial volume. Notice the fine binding and the delicate, expensive gold-leaf lettering. Now let us flip open a few pages so that you may see the expensive printing techniques and the sturdy paper. This set is guaranteed to last a lifetime, Mr. Carew, and the lifetimes of those children who will come after you. I'm not married. A man of your literary worth simply can't afford to be without one. How much? Henry asked cautiously. Only $67.50. A rare bargain in this day of advancing prices and shoddy materials. Henry fingered the volume. Is it new? He asked suddenly. I don't want anything out of date. New? My dear Mr. Carew, look at this. And the peddler opened the front cover to turn a few pages, stopping at last on a colored frontispiece facing the title page. He turned the book about so that Henry might see. Lithographed in four beautiful colors was a picture of a handsome and distinguished man, while below it ran the printed legend, Dwight D. Eisenhower, President of the United States, 1952. Well, yes, Henry agreed. It's new, all right. His practiced eye ran down the title page, noting the type arrangement and layout, the names of the several editors and publisher, coming to rest at last on the copyright date. The Roman numerals caught his eye, and he returned to them to read them a second time, more slowly. Aha, he crowed in the salesman's face, an error. No, the walrus mustache shot high. Yes, it so happens I can read Roman numerals. Look at this, MCMLV. Clearly a typographical error. The proofreader was not on the job. Oh my, 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 the salesman said. Mr. Carew, I am most distressed at this flaw in my offering. I am moved to make a reduction. Sixty-five dollars. Henry grinned to himself, believing he had driven a hard bargain. I'll take it. The old gentleman scurried out to an automobile standing at the curb and returned with the remaining thirty-five volumes. He accepted Henry's check, bid him a cheery farewell, and drove away. Henry at once forgot about the waiting gallery proofs to sit down and thumb the volumes, searching for information he might put into the hands of Dan Devlin. And that's all there was to it, he said to Groves. Groves had followed the recital by opening the first volume to the lithographed picture and the title page. Now he stared at the copyright notice. What does MCMLV mean? Why is it an error? Henry leaned over his shoulder. The MCM is 1900. The first M indicates 1000, while the following CM indicates 900, 100 less than 1000. Had the C followed the M, it would have indicated 100 plus 1000, so 1900. The L is 50, and the V, 5. 1955. It should have read 1954, of course. Across the room, Clark was rapidly pulling volumes from the shelf to examine the date in each. After a while, he looked up. They all have the same date. Of course, Henry agreed. I got 250 off. He thought to add, I've had only one disappointment with the set. There's nothing in it about the space station. Clark jerked around suddenly. Space station? Yeah, you know, during the last war, Germany had plans for a space platform to be anchored in the sky, a thousand miles up. Following the war, the United States took over the plans. There's been an awful lot of speculations in the magazines about the space station, pictures and such. Some say it will be a refueling station for rockets going to the moon, and others claim it will make a military observation post as it encircles the Earth. It occurred to me that Dan Devlin could make an adventure of it. 
And there is nothing in these books about it? Clark demanded anxiously. Nothing about a space station? Not a word. Quite a disappointment, really. Clark looked at Groves, closed his eyes, and sighed. Quite clearly and audibly, he thanked his god. When he had opened them again, he made a request of Henry. I want to use your telephone. In there, pointing. Henry and Groves remained silent, listening. They couldn't help listening because the instrument was so near. Clark called his headquarters in Washington and described the entire situation. Holding a volume in his hand, he read off the title page and then told of the typographical error that had been discovered, told the supposedly secret information contained in its pages, and told how Dan Devlin had made free use of that classified information to win many fictional battles with an enemy spy. There followed a long period of silence. Clark waited, toying with the phone, staring out the window, turning around to find the two men watching him. They're calling New York to check with the publisher, he explained to Groves. Groves nodded and the silence went on. After several minutes, the distant voice spoke again and the CIC agent exploded violently. It is two. I've got one right here in my hand. The voice continued at a fast clip. Clark said, yes, he's here with me. He'll verify it. 36 volumes. He listened more and more and his face became a dull crimson. He said finally, stiffly, yes, sir, and hung up. Groves watched him expectantly. That edition doesn't exist, Clark said, waving his hand at the bookshelf. The New York publisher hasn't printed it yet. Nonsense, Henry exclaimed. Clark stabbed a glance at the writer. The publisher said he hasn't issued an edition of that encyclopedia since 1949. He further said they are considering a new edition in about a year, pending the release of certain material by Washington. In short, if Washington reveals enough to make a new edition worthwhile, they'll go to press. $65, Henry reminded him, pointing to the sprawled books. I've used them for months. Yes, you have. Clark brought forth a wallet and carefully counted out $65. He handed the money to the writer. I'll need a receipt. What's this for? For an encyclopedia set which doesn't exist. My orders are to seize the books. You can't do that. I am doing it. The receipt, please. But I need that set. You can buy another downtown, Clark reminded him and then added bitterly. And this time, buy a set that does exist. Buy some that were printed a few years ago. He stooped and began picking up the books. Groves jumped to help him. Henry watched them. Big brothers, he snarled suddenly. They went on with their seizure. The doorbell chimed its familiar one-two-three pattern. Ting, ting, thunk. Henry paused in the middle of a sentence and contemplated stuffing the chimes with rags to prevent the constant interruptions. It had been difficult going the last few days without the familiar volumes to encourage him, and at the moment, Dan Devlin was involved in a plot with counterfeiters that was downright stupid. He growled aloud and pushed back the chair to go to the door. A shiny new car stood at the curb, a car he had not seen on the streets before. It seemed to resemble those experimental models found only at automobile shows, a hint of things to come. The car was very low and sleek and futuristic. He stared in wonder. A voice below the level of his eyes sang out a cheery greeting. Ah, good morning, Mr. Carew. Good morning, good morning. A striking day for the creative urge of an author, is it not? And how is your good work progressing? Kerry Carew dropped his gaze from the remarkable automobile to stare at the elderly gentleman wearing a walrus mustache. Bad, he said. I lost my encyclopedia set and can't do research. Indeed, sir, the old man exclaimed. How very fortunate that I happened along. 
I happen to have in my hand the initial volume of a brand new edition, fresh from the presses. Let your fingers feel the fine texture of the cloth, examine, if you will, the strong white paper, and the large, easy-to-read type. I assure you, Mr. Carew, this new edition will supplant in every way all other encyclopedias, bringing to the fore as it does the latest developments the world over, and at the same amazing low price of $67.50. Henry regarded him closely. Does it tell all about the space platform? Of course, of course, my dear sir. The very latest reports about the entire matter, plus, of course, allied fields. This new edition is years ahead of all the others. But wait a moment and see for yourself. The old fellow turned and hurried to the shining new car. From the trunk, he brought forth an encyclopedia set and in three trips had carried the 36 volumes to the door. I invite your closest inspection, Mr. Carew. A man of your outstanding intelligence wants only the best. Carrie Carew reached down for the volumes keyed So See To Suda and riffled the pages, seeking out the desired subject matter. His eyes opened wide in delight. There it was, some three and a half columns concerning space stations, space platforms, orbits, military advantages, and the like. Sold, he declared instantly. A most discerning gentleman, the peddler said. Hurriedly, Henry had a belated second thought and turned back to the title page to read the copyright date. His accusing eyes lifted to the old gentleman's face, and he thought to wag a reproving finger beneath the mustache. Ch-ch, he said, the same error. Really? the peddler asked. He peered at the offending date. This is most unfortunate. M-C-M-L-V-I-I, Carrie read aloud. That's 1957. Your proofreaders aren't very alert. I admire your vast knowledge, sir, the peddler said. Your wits are as sharp as your eyes. Suppose I reduce the price by two dollars and a half? Sold, Henry repeated, and wrote out a check. He carried the 36 volumes inside the door and then waited there to watch the old gentleman drive away. That was certainly a spectacular car, something you wouldn't expect to find on the streets for five or ten years yet. Henry selected the one prized volume and retired to his den. He drew from the typewriter the counterfeiting story and threw it in the wastebasket, settled back to read up on space station data in preparation for Dan Devlin's next exploit. Wilson Tucker, the author of MCMLV, lived from 1914 to 2006. In addition to his fiction writing, he also wrote about science fiction as a prominent fan, and he even coined the immortal term, space opera. MCMLV was published in issue 8 of Universe Science Fiction. All issues of Universe Science Fiction are available on the Internet Archive at archive.org.